Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So, as I mentioned, we are continuing here, are really kind of wrapping up our, our series, our, our time in Hebrews. It's been about seven or eight months. Uh, I think we have this week, and we'll see how it goes, maybe one more week in Hebrews next week. Uh, we're going to be looking at this about eight verses here, and uh, we have a lot to cover, and, and so we're going to just dive right in this morning. We're going to, if you remember, if you were here last week, what we kind of said was, because really today's message is a continuation of the kind of the theme that the author was kind of started in, in chapter 13, verse 1 through 5. And so this idea is, is that he, he's kind of been telling us this whole time through this whole letter, this, this whole book that he's written and, and given to the early church there that were Hebrews, that were, had become Christians. He's told them all about Jesus and that Jesus is greater than, than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. He's, he's told them all of these things. He's talked about doctrine and, and what it means to the great high priest that Jesus fulfills all of those Old Testament things and that there's this new covenant and, and all of this picture is, is beautifully laid out. But, but the thing is, he gets to 13 and he kind of says, now the thing is, is that you have to live this life. In other words, it's not enough that you just know these things. It's not enough that you just know that Jesus is greater. It's not enough that you just know that he became the perfect high priest and, and his sacrifice was enough. You need to live this way, and, and we looked at last week, is that if we believe in Christ, if, if we say, if we confess or, or profess faith in Christ and all that he is and all that he's done, then we need to live it. Living it is the evidence of the believing it. Now, we don't do that perfectly, and, and I made that point last week, we never do that perfectly. By God's grace, he, he carries us along. He has grace for when we stumble. But if you want to walk secure in your walk with Christ, the thing that helps us to be secure in that is to look and examine our own hearts and our own lives and say, am I living it? Not perfectly, but do I desire to live it perfectly? Am I striving to live it perfectly? And so that's really where he's going to continue in the message today, in, in this text today. And, and so I have no big idea for you because really the big idea was last week that, that if we believe... We will live it. And so here, the author of Hebrews is going to continue to, to challenge us and, and to kind of say to us, this is what it looks like to believe. This is what it looks like to live out this life. And, and so I, kind of this idea that these are, we're going to look at seven things that we're going to kind of extract from the text, that these are the things that kind of we must do. Now, when I say must, it's not like this is not a salvation issue that we must. Some of it may be. These are not all commands directly in the Scripture, but I think the way that he's phrasing this and the way he's putting an emphasis on how we're to live, it's, it's kind of the close. In fact, many commentators look at the end of the book and say, wow, it's kind of just a hodgepodge here. He's throwing a bunch of stuff in. Because I think what he's saying is, look, I've spent, I've spent all this time in the first part of my letter, my first part of this, is telling you who it is. Now I'm going to just tell you what you need to do, how you need to live. And it's going to go here and there, and so we're going to take a look at that. So we're going to look at seven take away seven things that I would say that, that he's instructing us, encouraging us that we must do, right? We must do as believers. I'm going to give you the point first, then we're going to dive into the text. First one, we must choose our leaders wisely. And so you've already failed at one, so. Took you a second to get that one, didn't you? We must choose our leaders wisely. Now, I will 
I will make the point here in the text, that's kind of not what he's saying exactly, but I think that's the the repercussion or that's the consequence of what he's going to say here. Let's look at that. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, right? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I will tell you, when I was studying this, as soon as I read the first verse, I'm like, okay, no one should be imitating my life, right? That's the first thing I'm thinking because I know my heart. I know where I struggle. I know those things. But it was never a reminder that as elders and as people of God, we need to live a life um, devoted to the Lord, one of, of confession, one of transparency with each other. Uh, obviously, um, confession and transparency before the Lord, but even with each other. We want to root out sin in our life. We want to constantly bring it into the light. Um, as John chapter 3 says, you know, we, sin loves the darkness, and we bring it into the light so that it can be exposed and be seen. And so... But he says here, remember. Now, we don't, we don't exactly know, but this, this word kind of conjures up the idea that maybe here in the, in the first century, this letter was probably written in the late 60, 60 years after the resurrection, uh, 60 AD, uh, 65, right before the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And, and so many church leaders were put to death before this. Uh, If you remember, James, one of the disciples, was put to death. There was others that were put to death, right, for their faith. And and so it's very possible that he's looking back and and he's reminding them, remember them, right? Now, it's also possible that he's even looking back farther into the Old Testament because Abraham and Isaac, we remember chapter 11, the heroes, the faith heroes, right? He could be looking back to them and say, remember them. But why? So he says, remember them. Those who spoke the word of God. Now, once again, we could say, well, is this New Testament, Old Testament? I think it, it could be both. He's, he's saying, look, those that led you in the Old Testament, those that led you in the word of God, the, all of that teaching in the Old Testament, the old thing, that was good, it was right, it was appropriate. But now, obviously, he's also probably bringing in the gospel. Those that have that led you in the gospel have shared the message of grace and hope with you. Remember them. But why again? He keeps diving a little deeper. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life, right? Consider their outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This word consider, um, it really means to uh, pay careful observation. In other words, to, to really examine to just really be able to say, okay, how are they living? I need to consider and examine the way they've lived because it's going to give meat to what they say, what they teach, and it, 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 needs to, it needs to match. James says this, obviously, in the book of James. He says, you know, if you have faith, right, you'll have good works, right? It'll be there. It will be a, just a, a consequence of believing will be there if you're a true believer. And so, you should live in such a way, your leaders should live in such a way that you should be able to examine their life and you ought to be able to imitate their life to some degree, not perfectly because we all have sin in our life, but for the most part we ought to be examine and imitate the people that we follow. Now ultimately we follow Christ. But, but many places, we're going to see this here in a minute, um, Paul says, as I follow Christ, follow me. 
That, I mean, you think about this, this idea of leaders. Here, once again, I think he's talking about leaders in the church, but I think that we can even, and that's very important, I think that's the context of this passage, is that leaders in the church, pastors, elders, other leaders in the church. But I want to I put the weight on you and say, you know, you lead your spouse. You, you lead your children. You, you lead your, your community. You lead your family as a whole, maybe even an extended family. You may even lead at your workplace. And so your conduct matters. How you live, you, you've, if, if you've said, and if you're a believer, they should know that you're a Christian. That, we're going to get to that. But if, if you're a Christian, that should be known among the people that you're around. If you're hiding that, there's a problem. Now, I'm not saying that you go into work and you try and cram it down everybody's throat, right? No, but, but you should be clear that that's where you are. And your conduct should match that. Because the unbelieving world, those that are not Christians, are watching. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be perfect, once again. But, when we, but, but they're also watching that when we sin or when we fall short, are we humble? Are we... Do we ask for forgiveness? Is, that, is there repentance in us? They may not see it the same way as we do, but do they de- see that demonstrated as a, as, a, as a willing to come back and acknowledge that we have made a mistake or we have sinned at some level? That's another way that we look at their outcome of their life. Now, it's also very possible that, that when he's saying here, um, examine their way of life, and imitate it. It's going to get a little heavy here. He, he could be saying, look, they ultimately went to death. Examine it. They did whatever was necessary to follow God or to, in the Old Testament or to follow Christ, and it led to death. So examine that closely. Because if you decide to follow Jesus, this may be what is required. We see that all over the world today. We've talked about that now. There's people that are following Christ, and it costs them their life. We're in a culture today that, while that's not exactly, uh, we're not worried about our physical life in the same way, we, following Jesus costs us something, and we're going to see that he's going to touch on that later. You know, we go back into Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. He touches on the same thing. He says, and we desire each of you to show the same earnest to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he's, he's talking about just believing till the end, having put on a hope in Christ, hanging on to that. Why? So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and have patience inherit the promises. So he's, he's even in here in 6, he's saying you need to live in such a way that people can imitate you. I would ask you a question this morning. Do you want your children to imitate your way of life? You should say yes. Not, not every detail, right, maybe. But, but by and large, do you want your children to imitate your way of life? And what does that look like? Do they see you pray? Do they see you read scripture? Do they see you lie? Do they, they, obviously, they see what shows you watch. They see your language with your spouse. They see how you talk about your neighbor. Do you want them to imitate your way of life? Well, you know, in our world today, and, and I'm, I am really wrestling with my own, my own lips, my own language, um, because, you know, I, I, I thought years ago, and I've said this, I thought years ago when I uh, 
God kind of delivered me from all the big ones, you know, the substance abuse and sexuality and the language and all those things. I thought, wow, this is smooth sailing from here, <laughs> right? I mean, if I can get those, if God can help me do those things. And I will tell you that the things that have the heart are so much bigger. The things that will never, that are just with us always, the temptation to say this or to do that or to think this way or, or to be selfish or to be prideful and all those things are constantly, and I can never shake them ultimately. They're just always available. You know, the, those other things are not available to me because I've removed myself from those things, but these things are always available. I always am battling those things. And I think you probably are in that same place if you're honest with yourself. And he's just saying, you know, but, but we have a promise that if we will just follow and, and, and live right before the Lord and acknowledge Christ and let people imitate us. I love how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I'm not going to go into the first part of it, really, but he basically says, Rejoice in the Lord always, you know, and be anxious for nothing. That's a, a beautiful passage. There's these two ladies that aren't getting along, and, and, and he's just saying, Hey, your, your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and so you can rejoice always. But then he kind of wraps it up in verse 8 and 9. He says, Finally, brothers, once again, brothers meaning brethren, men and women, everyone. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever. Now think about how if you want someone to imitate your life, think about these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, that's a really good one. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now here's the passage, here's the line that I think is so important. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So what is he saying there? He says, what you've learned and received, in other words, when, when someone's looking at your life, they're learning from you. When they sit under the teaching of the word, they're learning, and they've, they've received the teaching of the word. They've, they've received the gospel. They've received the commandments. They understand what it is. But then he makes it very practical, and he, may, he, he says, look, and heard and seen in me. You've learned it. You've, you've been in the service. You've been sitting under the teaching. You've learned it. You've received the gospel. But now I'm, I'm saying that you can look at me and say, do what I do, right? You've heard it and seen it in me. You've, you've heard me talk. You've heard my language. You've seen my actions. You've seen my integrity. You've seen my humility. You've, you've seen my, uh, my willingness to, to ask for forgiveness and to give forgiveness. You've seen those things. And practice these things. And what's the result? And the God of peace will be with you. you you'll, you'll be living right before the Lord. And, and you'll be able to be imitated. And you won't have a problem with someone imitating you. So we need to choose our leaders wisely. And once again, he specifically is talking about the leaders here in, in the church, probably in the past, um, about remembering them. But I think for our application, clearly in the church here, uh, our elders and others that are in leadership, we should be choosing them wisely. We are doing our very best to, 
to pray with people, to examine, to assess whether someone is ready to lead. And, and, and we obviously all fall short in this area, and, and we try and uh, admonish one another when that happens. We try and hold each other accountable. Uh, I'm, I'm open to, to you, as long as you come lovingly, uh, to come to me. And if you have a grievance with me, if, you, if I've sinned against you in some way, I would want you to come to me. Not go to your spouse, not go to the rest of the congregation. Um, there may be a time for that if I rebel and, and say, you know, I don't, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and if you're, if you're right. And so we need to choose our leaders wisely. That's one of the takeaways here. All right, next one. We need to rest in an unchanging Jesus. We need to rest in an unchanging Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now some people say, well, what... Why is that stuck in there? Like, he's talking about leaders and remembering leaders and, and living a, a life that can be imitated. And ultimately, I think what he's saying is, is that, well, if the leader is, is following Christ, then I want you to know that he never changes. So you, you, it's not a moving target here. If your leaders are truly following Christ, if you are truly following Christ, the, the thing that you can rest in is that Jesus never changes. He doesn't, today is not this way and tomorrow is that way. There's not new hurdles to jump through. In fact, there is no hurdles. He just says, look, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? I have made an atonement for your sin. I have died for you. I have become sin for you, and I have died and taken your penalty. And so I don't, that doesn't change. That, that is something that we, that's a foundation of the Christian faith. And think about that for a second. How important is it, have you really thought through this, that God never changes? I mean, we just take that for granted. He just doesn't change. Um, theologians or, you know, people, that's immutability. He's immutable. He doesn't change. And, and we could spend a whole message on that, and I won't, I won't go into all of that, but just think about if he changed, we would never know whether we're living the way we should or not. We would never know, is there something else I need to do? No, no, it's scripture. He's laid out scripture. He's laid it out. He doesn't change. He doesn't change his mind. Scripturally, you'll say, well, back in, in Moses' time, God says he changed his mind. There was things that he was showing people, his character, not that he really changed his mind. He knows the future. If God, could ch if God was changing his mind, if he wasn't, um, if he changed, that means he wasn't perfect from the beginning. And so if you say, well, he changed his mind, that means he's flawed because he didn't know the right answer to begin with. And we know that's not true, right? And so when we come to Christ and we understand that Jesus is God, he doesn't change. And so it's the foundation that we can model ourselves after. As someone imitates us, we can imitate them. We can imitate Jesus because he doesn't change. I think that's what the, the author's trying to say here. He brings this up actually early in his letter to the Hebrews, back all the way back in chapter 1, verse 12. The second part of verse 12, he says, but you are the same and your years will have no end. He's kind of talking about who Jesus is as he's comparing him to angels and, and, and he's just saying, but you, your, your years will never end. Malachi, back in the Old Testament, God says it this way, for I, the Lord, do not change. Okay, it doesn't get any clearer that the Lord speaks for himself there. I, the Lord, do not change. I don't, I don't change. I've decided it's, this is what I'm doing. This is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. This is going to be the outcome of, of what I'm doing. And I will not change. All right. So choose our leaders wisely. Rest in the unchanging Jesus. Third one. No Christian doctrine. 
no Christian doctrine. What is doctrine? It's the teaching of the faith. It's, it's the, the principles, the foundation in which we rest on and understand what specifically God did and, and what we need and who we are. It, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of sin, uh, the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of justification. All of these things are, these, these are not, once again, he doesn't change, and so these are immutable. They, they, there's a doctrine, there's a, something about us, like men, men and women are sinful. Okay, that, that's the doctrine of sin, right? We go into a lot of details about that, but, but we have sin. There's the doctrine of grace, that Jesus has died for us, has taken upon our sin, and he's made it available for those that will believe to be forgiven. It's the doctrine of grace. It's not by works. It's not a works doctrine. It's a grace doctrine, right? And so why is it important that we know doctrine? Well, he goes on here in Hebrews chapter 13, verse, three, or verse 9. It says, Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. That first line, though, do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Well, here's the point. If you don't know doctrine, if you don't know the Christian doctrine well, you will be led astray because you won't be anchored to anything. You you won't say, no, that's not right because I know this is right, right? You'll be led astray. Someone will tell you something that may sound good. In fact, especially if it's pleasing to your flesh, and you'll be led astray. Now, specifically, I think in the context of what he's saying here, remember, he's talking to the Jews. He's probably referencing their old way of doing things in the tabernacle and of the sacrifices and all the animals and all of the ritualistic stuff of the Old Testament. He says, he's saying, don't go back there. Don't be led astray, right? Don't be led astray. For us, is that could be true for us today? Yeah. Do we still get led astray in believing that we can be saved by works? Yeah, even in the church, people just default to that because everything in our culture is based on merit, right? Everything, our jobs, our raises, all of it is based on merit. How, how you make the team, you make the band, you make first string, second string, or first chair, second chair, it's all based on merit. And so then, but we come to the gospel and, and God says it's not based on merit. It's absolutely not based on, it's based on my grace for you, my mercy, my my call in your heart, you're not getting any credit for coming to heaven. It's all going to be me, right? And we just, we just, we can't, we don't kind of comprehend that. And I think sometimes we don't like it because we're not in charge. We want to be in charge. We want to know that it's us that it achieves it, right? But the gospel is not that way. It's, it's, and, but we have to know doctrine to be able to know that. So when that comes along, we can say, oh, this, this doesn't smell right. I, I, this doesn't look right. So what would be some things in our culture that, that we could so say by works? That's one that crops up a lot in the church, right? That God is just a God of love. That's a false teaching. He is love, absolutely. But not solely of love. He's a God of justice. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of righteousness. He's all those things. He's a God of wrath. In other words, he's going to judge sin. That's true. That's a doctrine. Well, if you think that God is only love, and that's, that's permeating the church today, that, that, that God is love, and then they don't go into any other doctrinal pieces, because that's what makes them feel comfortable. And so what, what do we see here is that is they're being led astray. It's almost like, well, there's not going to be any judgment for sin, because God is love. 
That's leading people astray. We could look at others. We could look at the prosperity teaching. And once again, I'm not saying this is not a matter of salvation. It could be for people. We can be led astray and be Christians. We can be born-again believers and be led astray in certain areas of our life. Um, I'm sure that when we get to heaven, God is going to look at us as an elder team and say, yep, you guys missed this one. You were not right on that. And, you, you know, I'm sure that we're someplace not perfect. But, but, but we're constantly going back to Scripture and saying, how, let us wrestle with this. How, can we, where's, how do we implement this? How do we live this out in our life? How do we live this out in the church? Well, but nobody's going to want to do that. Well, that's okay because that's what it says. We've we got to stand on that because we can't begin to move based on what people want, right? Look, sometimes I preach things and I'm like, Look, I, I, wish I, I wish it wasn't that way for me and my flesh, right? But it is. But we have to know doctrine. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Goes all the way back to the beginning again. He's, he's circling back. See, he's, he's planted all of these things. He's laid these foundational things early in his, his letter, but now he's circling back and kind of pointing back to them. He says, therefore, we must pay closer, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We preached on that about six months ago. We talked about we can drift. We easily can drift. The world is constantly tugging at us. Our flesh is weak. Our flesh wants what it wants. It, it always is going to want what it wants. I think I said, um, I don't know, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, this idea in Romans chapter 7 where, where Paul talks about, I see the law of sin working in me. He's talking about like a law that's just always there. It's a little bit like the law of gravity, right? The law of gravity. It's always going to be there. Your flesh is always going to want something contrary to what God wants. Just, just acknowledge it. Know your enemy, <laughs> your flesh. And does it, you can... The spirit has been given that we can conquer that, right? We, we're not going to be perfect at it because we're, we're still in the flesh. But Paul is just saying, look, it's, it's going to be that way. So acknowledge it and be on guard for it. So therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, the, the teaching of the word, the scripture, what we've heard. Now, remember, what he's saying here is what we've heard is because they not everybody had a Bible. They were listening to someone teach. You have the ability to have the word of God in your hands every day, listening to it on the radio, on TV, on podcasts, reading it. They did not have that. For over a thousand years, the word was not available. And for many, it was available at some point in some other language that they read in Latin and no one knew what they were saying, but they were there. It's one of the reasons why the, 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 um, some of the... Um, the creeds were, were brought, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, because they didn't have the Scripture. So what the, what the early church fathers did is they condensed all some powerful doctrines in what was called the, the Apostles' Creed, and people learned it. And they were reminded then of like ten doctrinal things right in that little thing that they could read. And so they recited it regularly so that they could commit it to their heart. And so they could stay connected to the doctrine, the Christian doctrine. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14. He says, so... So that we may no longer be children. So he's, he's referencing this thing as it's children, right? Children are kind of tossed to and fro. We, we quickly move this way. We, we believe this because, you know, we're, they're, well, I don't want to say they're innocent. Um, but, but they're kind of innocent in that way. They're, they're a little naive. They, they want to please, right? And so Paul says, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Every belief that's out there. 
Don't be carried by those things. Don't, don't be susceptible to those things. By human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Some people do that intentionally. We know that there are, over the last 20, 30, 40 years, we've seen pastors on TV uh, after your money. That's obviously a deceitful scheme. Many of those, maybe not even believers, but there's, there's an intentionality there. For some false teaching, though, it's just by ignorance that we end up there. People are teaching falsehoods and they don't know it. Maybe, maybe they're not in the word. Maybe they don't have other people in their lives holding them accountable to the, to the truth of the word. All right. And he goes on there and he says in Hebrews 13, 9, that center section, he says, but for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Okay, so he's talking about false teaching and strange teaching, but now he switches in the same sentence and he says, but it is good for us to be strengthened by grace. Another way to put that is, is by the gospel. It is good for us to be strengthened by the gospel. Right? That's an appropriate thing. It's, it's the right way to think, he's saying. We, we can dive into that. We don't need to worry about that one. It is good and right to be strengthened, and it strengthens our heart. The grace of God. Once again, we go back to Hebrews. He's planted these seeds in Hebrews chapter 2 again, verse 9. He says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He's talking about Jesus has come to earth. He's, he's, what's he doing? He's bringing a way for us to be forgiven. He had to become a man. And so we see him for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, right? It's Jesus that he's referencing. Crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Why? So that by grace, there it is, this thing that strengthens us, so that by grace of God we might taste death or he might taste death for everyone. So he's just saying, Jesus has, has died for us. Th- that truth should strengthen you. It, I mean, it should just strengthen you. I, I, I referenced Philippians earlier. In Philippians chapter three or chapter four, when there's these two women having this argument and, and they're not getting along, it looks like we don't know much about them. Paul just there's just this little little snippet pops in here about these two ladies. He says, you know, he's telling the the, the uh, kind of who he's writing to, to, to work, his good companion, to kind of work with these ladies. But one of the things he says in there that I think is so important is he says, I've labored with them in, for the gospel and, and with many of you. And he says, and your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And the next line is rejoice always, I say again rejoice. What is he saying that for? Because he's told them, your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Doesn't that strengthen your heart? <laughs> I mean, like he's saying, no matter what happens in your life, no matter what comes, no matter what tragedy comes, no matter what happens, I'm not saying there won't be grief, I'm not saying there won't be pain and trials, but strengthen your heart by knowing the gospel. You're, you're rooted in it. You're rooted in it. Your, your name is there. And that should strengthen your heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 8, he starts now in, well, actually, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 13, the first part of that, or the last part of it in verse 9. He says, not by foods, right? So, so for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So the, the body, the, the heart, our person, is, our spirit is good to be strengthened by grace. And he says, not by foods, which have not benefited those, who, those devoted to them. So what's he referencing? The tabernacle. Remember, he's speaking to Jews. 
who have, who have lived by the sacrifices, who who've, of the priests and all of that. It's all been about the sacrificial system and, and what you can eat and what you can't eat. This, there's this whole rule-based thing, and, and that gave you a confidence since you were being obeyed. And what he's saying is, is no, that, that's not going to strengthen you. That's not going to strengthen your heart. Grace is not there. It was pointing to something gracious, but it is not there. And so he's reminding them, don't go back to that food. Don't, don't go back to that way of, of works-based Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. <laughs> He's saying, look, those people that have been devoted to that system, that way of thinking, have not benefited from it. It pointed to something great, and if they acknowledge now Christ, it did benefit them, but if they're still going back there, it's not benefiting them. We see in 1 Corinthians now, chapter 8, 8, it says, Food will not commend us to God. As Paul is dealing here with the, the Corinthian church and, and talking about the foods that we eat and sometimes offered to sacrifice to, often to idols. And, and I won't get into all of that, but he says, food will not commend us to God. I think that's the important thing. For we are no, long, for we are no worse off if we do not eat and no better if we do. So in other words, whether you do this or eat that or not, that is not what's going to commend us to God. It is not a works-based system. It is not a, 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 well, I was perfectly obedient in this and what I had and what I ate. No, it's a grace thing. It's a new covenant thing. It's the work of Christ. It's not benefited them. And how has it not benefited them? In respect to justification, how does eating the right food justify you before God in your sin? It doesn't. How does it sanctify you? How does it, it make you better? How does it, it continue to work in your heart and your life to, to make you more holy? How's that process? How is food helping do that? It's not. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in us is doing that. How, how does it cleanse your conscience? Whew, I didn't eat any pork. I feel good about myself, right? Or I, I, I didn't, you know, I ate this way, or I didn't do that. I abstained from that because that was... Is, is that really cleaning and purifying your conscience? No. But if your doctrine is right, and you understand Scripture, and you put your hope and trust in Christ and, and the grace that comes through that, your heart will be strengthened, and it will benefit you. It will benefit you. Hebrews chapter 9, just going back a couple chapters, the middle part of verse 9, it says, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper. So, I, you know, let's say, you're, um, let's say you're, you, don't, you don't have a relationship with Christ, and, but you give lots of money. You serve a lot. You served at the car clinic all day yesterday and you changed tires and brakes and you did all those things. That's not going to clear your conscience. It's not going to justify you. It's not going to sanctify you. It's not going to do any of that. You can give as much money as you want. You can build a new wing. You can, whatever. It doesn't matter. None of that holds any water. You're still a sinner. You still have a debt that you need to pay. You still need a righteousness that you can't have, that you don't have. Where are you going to get that? So we need to know Christian doctrine. It is the foundation of our walk. 
It tells us how to walk. It tells us when we're not walking where we should be walking. It tells us when we're in the dark and when we're in the light. It, it, just, it just gives us, illuminates our journey. It, it tells us what we should do, right? In every other area of our life, we have these type of things, right? You, you go to work, you have a policy manual, right, that none of you have ever read. But this, this idea of, of how to function here as a church or as a, as a, as a worker, right? Many of you sign documents that say, I will do this, I will do that, right? You have rules at your home, guidelines for your children, so to protect them, to keep them safe, to, to give them knowledge. We, we send people to school to learn all sorts of things about professions so they can be good at those things, so they can be successful at those things. The most important thing that we should school each other in is the doctrine of the Christian faith. It has the power to save us, Nothing else has that power. Now, do those other things. I'm not, you should be educated. You should do things well. You should, you should work hard in those professions. But not at the expense of not knowing Christian doctrine. And yes, there's going to be times we're going to wrestle with certain things. We're not always going to see it all the same. And, and then some people want to take their toys and leave, right? I just encourage you not to do that. Look, we're wrestling for truth. There are great men and women of God who believe differently on some things, but but doesn't mean that we have to lose our fellowship. It doesn't mean that we're not believers. It doesn't mean that we still can't love one another and serve one another and and bring glory to God as we fellowship together. I'm sure there will be things, and maybe I'm sure there already has been things, certain ways that I see Scripture that you may not exactly see. But I think we all agree on salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, through grace alone. All right, so choose our leaders wisely. Rest in the unchanging, rest in an unchanging Jesus. No Christian doctrine. That was a big one. Number four, acknowledge Christ is the only true sacrifice. Right? Now he's, he's kind of, okay, know your doctrine, and if you know your doctrine, your doctrine's gonna point you to something. It's gonna point you to Jesus, and it's the only person he's gonna point you to. Right? So we need to acknowledge that this doctrine has this in it that states this. Right? That's what he's saying. Acknowledge Christ as the only true sacrifice. So where does he go here? In verse 10. It says, we have an altar. And I'll explain that here in a second. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Whew. Okay. We have an altar. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Hebrews that are Christians. What is their altar? Basically, symbolically, the altar is Christ. It is the cross. Jesus was sacrificed on the altar, the cross. Right? It, it wasn't a, a stone platform. It wasn't a, a thing like that and, and, or anything that, that was put in the, the tabernacle, right, where they killed the animals. No, Jesus was, was sacrificed on a cross. It's the altar, right? His blood was shed there on the altar, right? So we have an altar, an altar of, of grace and mercy that, that has paid for our debt, right? Who has freed us from sin, the penalty of sin. And he says, we have an altar. He's telling them, we, you and me, as believers, we have an altar of which those who serve the tent, the tabernacle. He's going all the way back now, even before the temple, because he just always goes back to the tabernacle. He's talking about when they came out of Egypt and the tabernacle that Moses, God instructed Moses to build and all of those things that was before Israel, the tent of meeting, the holy of holies. And he's saying, those who serve the tent, 
those who minister in the tent, not serve in the tent, but those who serve in the tent and serve the tent. What is he saying? Is So not just the priests who would go in and, and do all the ceremonial things, but those who serve the tent, those who bring their sacrifices to the tent, those who serve it, right? Those who serve it have no right, right? No right to eat. What, is, what does he mean by that? They have no right to partake of Christ because they're still serving this, this thing over here. So they have no right at our table. He's not saying that they don't have a, a way to the table. Christ has made a way. God has made a way. This morning, if, if, you, um, if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ and, and you're still living under, maybe you don't understand doctrine, maybe you don't know yet, you haven't formed a, a, a thought or a belief on something, or maybe you're serving a, a certain way, he's saying you, don't, you, don't, you have a right to come and that's, you have a way, but you have no right to come without Christ. You have to come through Christ. Right? That's, that's just the acknowledgement here. Right? That's what he's trying to get across. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent of meeting have no right to eat. And so what does that, what does that practically mean? Is that not everyone is saved. Not, not everyone has, has chosen to abandon that way of life, whatever it may be, and, and given their life and went to the altar that we that we can feast on this idea of, of God's mercy and his grace and his work on the cross, if we've surrendered to that, we now can partake of Christ. I don't think this has to do with communion, but you could make a loose connection here that says we partake on, on the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. They were partaking the animals, the sacrifices of animals, right? Faith brings a right through God's grace to which unbelief has no access. We have a spiritual gospel meat that we can partake of. All right, we've got to move pretty quickly here. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place the high, by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. I don't have a lot of time to try and unpack this, and it's, it's a kind of a challenging thing. So th- think about this. Now, in the tabernacle, um, you would bring on the Day of Atonement, at least, when, when they would sacrifice the animal, and they would take the blood from that animal, that, that goat or that bull, into the holy place or into the Holy of Holies and, and put it on the altar, put it on the, the mercy seat. That animal could not be eaten. It was taken outside the camp, all of its, its intestines, all of its flesh, and it was burned outside the camp, okay? Just remember that. This, this idea, though, that the camp represents Judaism. Um, it, it, is, it is that entity, that way of belief. When he's talking about the camp, he's talking about this, this official belief in, in Judaism, it just and, and you think about the Old Testament. When, when they had the camp, you, you didn't go outside the camp. There was boundaries. And what he's saying is, is that they take this animal outside that boundary and burn it, right? It has no place. There's no place. Only the blood, but those remains have no place. Let's go back into Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27. It says, In the bulls and the bull, for the sin offering, there was all types of different offerings, but this was a sin offering, and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place. So the priest would have a bull killed for himself to make him right. And then for the nation, they would kill a goat, right? He goes on there, it says, to make an atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. 
their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. So he's just going back to that Old Testament saying, this is how we did this, right? This is what's important. He's, so, and so then what is the writer here in Hebrews 13 going to say? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. And, and notice that they took him outside the gate. They killed him outside the gate. They're really saying, you're illegitimate. You're not part of this. You're illegitimate. We're going to take you outside the camp, and we're going to kill you. And we're going to bury you outside the camp. You have no part of this. You have no part of this. But what does it say here? So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He willingly went outside the camp. He left the institutional place of Judaism. He left that and was willing to go outside the camp, outside of that whole system, to die for us. To die for us. And so what is the consequence? We can see in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul says it this way. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This idea that, that Jesus is going outside and we're going to ultimately, we're going to see it here in a minute, we're ultimately going to have to follow him and give our lives away just as he does. But before we get there, let's take a look at the next, the thing here is that we must be willing to suffer for Christ. We must be willing to suffer for Christ. All right? Hebrews 13, 13. It says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So now the author is saying, because Christ was sacrificed outside the camp, he left this system, he left Judaism, he left all of it. They they said he was illegitimate, but yet his death shed his blood for us. And because of that, we should go to him outside the gate. What's he saying? We should leave the system. We should leave the system of of worship. This is not beneficial. Animals and goats and bulls and sacrifices, it is not beneficial. It, nothing, these people aren't going to be able to eat at the table, right? They have no right to eat. We need to leave this and go to him, right? We need to leave and go to him outside and bear the reproach he endured. What does that mean? We have to suffer as he suffered. We have to be willing to suffer. And see, here's another challenge for, for, our, for the church today as a whole, is that is the church willing to suffer? Is the church willing to suffer for Christ? Are we willing to stand for what he says, what the scripture says, what God wants for us to live holy and pure? Are we willing to do those things? As, as I, I know, it was pretty harsh last week, or pretty direct. I don't know, harsh is probably not the right word, I don't think. About many things, about sexual morality, about, about marriage and about those things. But are we willing to commit ourselves to live for him? That's really what he's saying is we have to leave all of this and, and let go of that and go here. Now for them, it was the Old Testament. For us, it may be something else. But we have to be willing to go, even if it's going to cost us something in our life. Which, once again, which gets back to the Romans 12, that we need to become a living sacrifice, holy to God and acceptable. All right. Got to wrap up. Two more real quick ones. Not only do we need to be willing to suffer for Christ, we need to keep a heavenly view, not an earthly one. Keep a heavenly view, not an earthly one. Because here's the thing. If, if, if you're going to suffer, if you're going to go outside the camp, you have to understand the doctrine again. You have to understand the, the, what God is doing. And what God is doing is he's preparing us for our home, right? This is not our home. So we have to keep a heavenly view, right? Not an earthly one. And if we can keep a heavenly view, it's much easier 
and understandable that we're going to suffer because we have that right understanding of doctrine. We have the heavenly view, right? Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, he says, for here we have no lasting city. He says, for here on earth we have no lasting city. Everything decays. Everything is going to perish. I said that last week to you. I said, everything you have or ever will have will be taken away from you. It will not last. It will not last. But we need to seek the city that is to come. The city that is to come. Hebrews chapter 10, or excuse me, chapter 11, just a couple chapters ago, he put it this way in chapter 11, verse 10. For he is looking forward to the city that has the foundations. Now here he's talking about Abraham, the, the hall of faith. He's, he's pointing and he says, Abraham was, was looking for a city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Way back in the Old Testament, Abraham understood that this is not his home. See, kind of the problem is, is that many, especially in the Western world, we've gotten so comfortable, we've made this place our home. This is not our home. I know that sometimes we want it to be. I get it. I, I cling to things too much sometimes as well. But this is not our home. This is not our home. Again, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, he says, But as it is, the desire, <clears throat> they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has prepared a place for us, a city. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, just a few weeks ago, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering. So Brian preached on that, this idea that there's... there's Mount Sinai, and then there's Mount Zion. And we, God has made a way for us in a new city, in a new heaven. Finally, Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. But our citizenship is where? Not here, not in the United States, not, not in anything, it is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the return to take us to our city, to our home. All right, last one. Last one. We must confess the Lord Jesus. We must confess or Jesus as Lord. So here is kind of the, the linchpin of all of this. Right, now this is a must, a true must. He goes on here in Hebrews chapter 13, 15. He says, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. First of all, it's through him. We can't have access to God unless it's through him. It's through Christ. We, we can't stand before God. We can't come into the Holy of Holies. It's through him. He is the thing that we come through, right? That's why we pray in Christ's name. We come into the, the presence of God in Christ's righteousness. It's through him. It says, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. They were doing it once a year. They were doing it when there was recognized sin in their life. They would bring an animal. What, what, what the author is says, no, this is a continual thing. This is the way our life should be. It's a continual act of praise and worship because we're in grace every day, every moment we're receiving the grace. God is interceding. Christ is interceding for us every moment of every day. And so it's a continual act of praise. And it finishes, it says, that is the fruit of the lips. What is the fruit? The acknowledgement of the name of Jesus. That's it. The acknowledgement of the name of Jesus. 
and who he is, and doctrinally who he is, not just the name, but who he is rightly in Scripture. Not in the Mormon faith, not in the Jehovah's Witness faith, not in the, the, the Muslim faith, a right doctrinal position of who Christ is and acknowledging Jesus in that way. Where do we see this? Romans chapter 14, verse 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. We will confess his name. Everyone. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I've heard it said, I think many years ago, author or pastor was saying, he says, you know, it's not a question of who will bow. It's about when you bow. Bow now is what he said, right? Bow now. Confess now. You're going to anyway. Now that's not the, should not be our ultimate motivation. It's the love of Christ, the, the, the appreciation for what he has done for us. But the point was, is look, understand the reality of what the doctrine says. The doctrine says is that Jesus is the only perfect sacrifice. And so you must confess him or profess him as Lord. And if you do not, you will someday. But you will not reap the benefits of that relationship. And finally, chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now see, here's, here's the act that we do. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the benefit of coming to Christ and acknowledging him. He's made a way to forgive us. We must believe. The belief is demonstrated in our acknowledgement and how we live out our life. And that's really what the author is saying. He says, this is who he is. He's greater than all these things. He's the perfect high priest. He's fulfilled all of these things. But you must live it. You must follow him. And so choose your leaders wisely. Rest in the unchanging Jesus. He never changes. No, dig in doctrine. Wrestle for truth. Know the doctrine. Acknowledge that Christ is the only true sacrifice. And if that's true, be willing to suffer for him. Go outside the city gates. Pursue him there. Leave the establishment that is maybe law-driven or holding you in some type of idol worship. Keep a heavenly view, not an earthly one. Get your eyes set on things above, not on things below. Be willing to confess Jesus as Lord. I don't have a next step for you today. I just want you to wrestle with those truths. I want you to talk about that. There's some questions on your handout when you go home today. Talk about those over lunch. Examine your own lives. Think, where am I at in these things? Am I resting in the unchanging Jesus? How does that, how does that make me comfortable? Am I leading well? Am, am, do I want people to imitate me? Have I, have I tr am I really, do I understand Christian doctrine? Do I really understand? What do I need to do if I don't? It's no shame. I'm still wrestling with it. <laughs> I'm still learning. Many times the week I preach, right, I'm learning. And, and so we wrestle with it. That's why we're in life groups. That's why we're in Bible studies. That's why we, we do these things. That's why we sit under the teaching of the Lord. That's why we preach the gospel, because I, I want to teach you doctrine. I don't want to teach you some man-made joy, happiness thing, right? But if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, 
The promise is you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Lord, we thank you for what you've put down here in the text some 2,000 years ago and how applicable it is today in our life. Father, we may not want to go back to a a law-based system all the time, but there are other things that we are easily deceived by. And Father, we think sometimes we can live our life and, and say the right thing, but not want to live the right thing and just want to tell our children or the people around us that to follow what I say and not what I do. But Father, you use our lives as a witness to you, for you. So Lord, help us to live in a way that is holy and pleasing to you and that you may use it for your glory and all the people that we come to see. And Father, when we sin and when we struggle, as we will and when we fall, help us to be transparent and ask for forgiveness, first and foremost of you and then those that we have hurt and sinned against. May all of that be pleasing to you, Father. May we keep our eyes set on heaven and not on earthly things. And Father, may we seek to leave all that the world has and to go outside the camp and to live and worship and if necessary to suffer with Jesus the reproach that he took upon himself. Because Father, someday we will spend eternity with you because of what he has done for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.